Welcome to The Lisa Show. Dr. Drew Faust has had a vast and remarkable career. She was the founding dean for the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University and in 2007 became the first female president of the university. As an author historian, she has written six books, multiple of which are prize winners, and was elected to the Society of American Historians in 1993. In September of 2018, Dr. Faust was awarded the John W. Kluge Prize for achievement in the study of humanity by the Library of Congress. If that wasn't enough, today she's currently a board member of Goldman Sachs. Dr. Drew Faust has spent her career breaking glass ceilings, especially for women, and we're honored to be speaking with her today about her life path and her experience in these different roles as a woman pioneer. Welcome, Dr. Faust. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you here. And most people know you as Harvard's first woman president, but we know a lot has happened in your life to get you to that point. For you, what were some of those pivotal moments in your early career that that led you on this path? Well, I never expected to be a university administrator. When I finished my Ph.D. in 1975, I entered the classroom and loved being there and loved the chance to interact with students and to do scholarly work in my field of Southern history and Civil War history. But I was entering the academy at a time when things were really opening up for women in dramatic ways. And there was a lot of effort to bring women into positions of uh, influence and authority in universities. And so I was often asked, did I want to be a dean? Did Mm -hmm. I want to take on a leadership role? And I always said, no, I wanted to stay in the classroom. And then in uh, 2000 or 1999 and then into 2000, when Neil Rudenstein at Harvard said, why don't you come and start this new piece of Harvard that is emerging from the merger of the old women's college, Radcliffe, with Harvard, I kept saying, well, I don't think so. And then he just kept talking to me. And before I knew it, I was picking up and moving from Penn, where I taught for 25 years, and taking on this new role. And to be frank, I loved it. I loved the chance to work together with people to advance a common goal and to uh, think about universities as organizations and institutions of influence in our culture. And so that's what happened. (laughs) Um, it's it's funny to listen to you describe the sort of surprise that you had or even almost reluctance to that. You know, in, in moving forward, you know, you're an inspiration to so many women. Who were those women in your life who inspired you, uh, you know, in the direction of your education and career? Well, I went to women's schools. I went to a girls' school for high school, and I went to Bryn Mawr College uh, for college. And so I saw a lot of powerful women. There was the head of the school, high school I went to, Concord Academy, was this formidable woman named Elizabeth Hall, who seemed undaunted by anything. And so she was a kind of role model. And then when I got to Bryn Mawr, I saw a lot of women who were scholars and PhDs and researchers and leaders in academic fields. And I think that was the most direct inspiration for um, for where I went. And just to name one of these women, a woman named Mary Maples Dunn, who was a history teacher of mine in college, um, went on to become president of Smith. And then um, she came to Radcliffe, actually, and was the acting dean before she'd retired from Smith, but was acting dean at the Radcliffe Institute before I arrived. And then she went on to be the head of the American Philosophical Society. So she was a person who also combined family and career in a way that some of the early pioneers of women in academia did not. And so Mary was a particularly wonderful role model for me. And she was a wonderful, wonderful person. You talk about entering academia, you know, back in the in the mid to late seventies, and to to where we are today. I would be curious what what um, do you think has the biggest accomplishment of say the last forty years? What is that mm-hmm. that greatest ceiling that's been broken through? And what are you still surprised that that we're struggling to break through? Well, the. Um, population, the demographics of academia have changed so dramatically in those years, and that includes uh, the welcoming of women, but it also includes a much broader array of um, groups that had been previously underrepresented significantly in, in university populations of students and also of faculty and leadership. So we see African Americans, Hispanics, uh, Latin, um, Latinx population, we see Asian Americans, we see um, 
undocumented students at Harvard now and, and elsewhere, we see just such a wide range of talent, which of course makes these institutions so much stronger because the bigger the pool you have from which to draw, the um, greater talent you are able to attract. And so I think that's been a revolution. And it's been accompanied with efforts to make higher education affordable, which I think mm-hmm. is essential for the kinds of changes that I've described. So those are dramatic shifts in what higher education has represented in this country during the time that I have been involved in it. Specifically during your time as president of Harvard, what changes did you see happen um, for women? And, and, and was that something that you set out to do uh, and, and, and what you wanted your mark on the university to be? It certainly was. And we increased the numbers of women in positions of leadership. I was the only uh, woman who was a dean uh, when I arrived. And when we had dean's meetings, it was me and all these men with the university president. And now I think half of the deans are women. So that's a pretty dramatic shift. And four of those are African-American women. So that also is a dramatic shift. So I'm very pleased that all of that's happened. There's just to tell a little story. There's someone that I worked with who'd been at Harvard as an administrator for many, many, many years. And towards the end of my presidency, he said to me, you know, when um, I used to be uh, in meetings at Harvard, I always knew that if I came into a room and there were a lot of women in the room, this wasn't going to be a significant meeting. Hmm. He said, now, if there are not a lot of women in the room, I know it's not going to be a significant meeting. Wow. So uh, he just described that sort of shift in, <laughs> in how the landscape was configured at the university over, over those years. That meant a lot to me, actually, yeah. when he told me that story. Wow. We're talking with Dr. Drew Faust, who is the president emerita of Harvard University, among a lot of other things. I hate to put you in that, in that singular box. Um, but I would be curious then, sort of looking forward, what are those things that are on the horizon or what are those ceilings that are yet to be broken? Well, one of the... Um, I think, insights that has uh, come into consciousness more forcefully in recent years among academic leaders and throughout universities more generally is that diversity isn't enough. Just changing the demography is not enough. You bring people together, but you have to make sure that everyone can flourish in the environment that you have created. And so we now talk about diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And there's an awful lot of work to be done on the also still on diversity, the numbers still aren't where they should be, but uh, a lot of work on making sure that when people do get access to institutions of higher education, that they feel fully part of those communities and able to take advantage of all the opportunities that they offer. So that seems to me high on the agenda of where we need to focus in the, in the years to come. Well, um, taking a, a larger look at the impact that that you've had, um, certainly in, in education, you recently just gave a powerful speech here virtually at, at BYU about the importance of having humility during the lifelong road of learning. And I was wondering if you could expand on that uh, about why you believe that humility is so vital to education. Well, I began the speech talking about a memory of my very first week in college when our university, our college president, it was Bryn Mawr College, when she addressed us as the kind of capstone event of that beginning week. And she talked about humility and how if you're going to learn anything, you have to recognize that you don't know everything already. And so learning is kind of predicated on this assumption of ignorance and of limits that you currently um confront, but that you can break through with the help of education. And so that notion of asking questions and being open and not feeling that you know everything or can tell everybody um, how they ought to understand the world, but rather work to come to new uh, understandings, that seems to me critical to every element of pursuing education. And I I continued Mm -hmm. by saying something else that this uh, college president said to us, which was, you know, every incident in her life, she asked, what can I learn from this? And this was until presumably her dying day. And that, I think, is another aspect of education is that we're never done. We're never educated. We're always becoming educated. And so that demands a certain humility, too. It's whatever degrees you may have. Don't just rest on them. There's still more to learn. 
You know, as we, as we look at sort of your life sketch, the, the different things that you've entered into and engaged and then had the opportunity to be able to lead and then to know and note that now you are a board member at Golden Sachs, it, it, it almost begs a question like one of these things is not like the other. Like a president of a university is not the same as being a, a board member at Goldman Sachs. I would be curious wh- what uh, encouraged you to take that position. And similarly, like academia, that to me seems like a situation where it would be predominantly men? Well, there's several um, aspects of the position at Goldman Sachs that attracted me. One is it's a big organization that's very visible and kind of has a target on its back all the time. And that seemed to me similar in some ways to Harvard. It also depends on talent and recruiting talent and nurturing talent. And so I felt that perhaps I could have something to offer in relationship to that. But what I hoped in joining the board was to be able to think with people at Goldman Sachs about the relationship that business can have towards um, advancing good outcomes for our society and the people in it. And how can business and other sectors of society and the economy work together for some of the social justice goals that I think are so important? And I've been so pleased to be able to work together uh, on a board with uh, CEO David Solomon, who is deeply committed to issues of diversity. Um, his predecessor, Lloyd Blankfein, had been one of the leaders in speaking out about LGBTQ issues. David has made strong commitments to um, bringing in uh, both women and more diverse populations in terms of underserved groups. And he just announced an a initiative uh, involving black women. So how do we use the resources of the American economy to support these kinds of advancements in, in our society? And so it's been interesting for me to sit on that board and think about what is the relationship between business, which is such an important part of American life, mm-hmm. and some of the goals that, that have been central to me throughout my life? It's interesting that you have all these opportunities moving forward, and and it is in the objective then, it seems to me, is to help other people and, and, and to lend a helping hand. Has that always been a focus of your life? Um, I, I guess so. I from the time I was a small child growing up in segregated Virginia in the 1950s and 60s, I always had this powerful sense of what was fair and what wasn't fair. I think maybe some of that came from growing up in a family where I had three brothers and they were all told they could do things that I wasn't allowed to do. <laughs> and my mother would say, it's a man's world, sweetie, and you need to understand this. It made me furious. <laughs> wow. And so I, I think I have just always wanted to say, how can we make things more fair? And that's a form of service, I think. But I think it was motivated by this notion of justice. It almost wow. seems like sort of a trite mm-hmm. question, but I would be curious. The the people that are, are you know, lacking, not lacking, that's not the word I want to use, but that are searching for the motivation that would look at your life and say, well, of course, of course, Dr. Drew Faust can do that. But what, what possible difference could I sort of make? Speaking to that individual, what sort of advice would you give them? Everybody can make a difference. I think education is an important part of that. So perhaps the first advice I'd give is pursue your education and see what captures you within it and what direction it might indicate you could follow and uh, achieve some of the goals that, that are motivating you. So that would be a beginning. But also one of the aspects of my life that has been surprising but foundational is that I never knew what to expect. I never had a plan because for women, when I was growing up to have said I'd be president of Harvard, (laughs) people would have thought you were crazy. Mm -hmm. So you have to be open to doors that may open before you and to understand that you may have opportunities that you haven't predicted or planned for and be aware of looking for those and then seizing them when they come. I would also ask the question, are there things that you, you know, as you get to the the second part of your life and you're looking at things that, that you want to accomplish? <laughs> be a long life. Yeah. <laughs> are, are there things that for you are on your horizon where you're... Yeah, what you're looking forward to. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed in my post-presidential time, almost three years now, returning to the classroom and being together with remarkable Harvard students in 
seminars where we can talk about a variety of issues and texts and historical um, happenings. That has been extremely rewarding. And seeing these young people and thinking about what they mean for the future is very gratifying. I'm also working on a book, which is a kind of combination memoir history of growing up in the 50s and 60s. And what motivated me is that I've spent a lot of my scholarly life listening to the voices of people from other times, Hmm. listening to the voices of women in the Civil War, listening to the voices of those who lost loved ones in the Civil War to write my book about death. Uh, And so I I have some things I want to say. I want to be a voice that perhaps can help define and interpret and communicate what the 1950s and 60s were like once those of us who lived through them are no longer around to do so. So that's what I hope to be doing now. I think that era has not entirely been understood, and it was a transformative era. It has yielded the kinds of changes and opening up that, that we were just talking about. And to understand that, I think, is important to understanding how we can continue to become a more just society. Dr. Drew Faust, the president emerita of Harvard University, the first female president of Harvard and a well-known author and historian. Uh, We would love to extend the invitation that when that book is published to come back on the show and to tell us about that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. My great pleasure. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lisa Show. As you might know, the pandemic created an artificial economic recession across the globe. As countries went into lockdown mode, many people lost their jobs, manufacturing shut down, and some slash most economies just stopped. While millions were affected by this artificial recession, new studies show that women specifically have borne the brunt of the pandemic-related job changes. Many women lost their jobs or left the workplace to care for their children. Well, we wanted to know more about this and what these studies are telling us uh, regarding COVID-19 and how it is, in fact, affecting working women. So joining us today is the director of the Utah Women and Leadership Project, Susan Madsen. Welcome back to the Lisa Show, Susan. Great to be here. Now, I've heard this uh, this explained as the pink recession. Is that is that what you're calling it? Yeah, she's session or pink recession, but I use the pink recession more. And really, that, that means that women have left the workplace in droves or, or had considered it. Um, and as I've said in some of my writings, although pink is often viewed as a pretty color, the pink recession is not necessarily pretty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why, why is this so much uh, more on women than women and men uh, equally? Well, first of all, there's many reasons. But first of all, uh, one of them is that, you know, women are really, when you look at the industries that they work in, they're in some of the industries that were really shut down early on and have struggled more to pick up, even though many of them have picked up during the pandemic, many of them are still struggling. Things like uh, food services and hospitality and, and um, you know, even in some of the educational roles and so forth. And, and as you know, some of the most of the the positions, the teaching positions in K through 12 are women. And even though those didn't end, the struggle that educators have had in in trying to figure out how to do online and back and forth, being live in classes and all of that has caused some real stress as well. But we really, in our recent report that focuses on Utah, really looked at reasons why women specifically left here in the state of Utah, but it aligns so much with the national data around the U.S. So so let's pick up some of those pieces. I would think that um, in some households, it needed to be decided that one person would come home to be able to care for kids. How come that sort of, not automatically, but more often than not goes to women than men? Well, if you have two, if you happen to have two parents in the home, first of all, you know, we always have to keep in mind that some some families with with kids specifically have single parents, which right. of course took the brunt of of a lot of this. But uh, you know, if there's two parents and they're both working, you know, more women did lose their jobs. I mean, the when you look at the economic impact of COVID nineteen, 
you know, even early on from like February to May, you know, almost 12 million women lost their jobs, about 9 million men, but definitely more women. And and I found one of the most interesting statistics is in the U.S. just in December, 140,000 people lost their jobs and every one of them was women. Hmm. And so those, so when we look at why women left the workplace, the number one thing is that their employee employer was financially impacted. But then the secondary reason is really sometimes women were just stuck. It's like somebody has to take care of the kids and I can't keep doing this job and trying to do homeschooling with my kids and I don't have daycare for my two and three year, or three year old mm-hmm. running around. And so sometimes they left totally, but we also saw, especially in our data and the US data, that some just you know, went from full-time to part-time. And on the other hand, we did find um, uh, 12% of women in our sample who who actually took on more responsibilities because their spouse maybe lost their job. So they had to pull in, you know, going from part-time to full-time or taking in additional jobs. So what a shift, lots of shifts. Um, uh, You know, it's not just totally losing jobs, mm-hmm. but but different kinds of shifts in the workplace. Um, as you know, women just have, throughout time, have done way more unpaid care work than men, and that impacts many things. Now, when we talk about the uh, impacts of, of COVID-19, the pandemic on women, does it affect all women specifically, um, or equally, I guess I should say, or does it affect different uh, minority groups or different um, subgroups differently? That's a, a great question. First of all, it does definitely impact women of color. The research that has come out nationally, but also our research, even in the state of Utah, shows already that, that women of color have been impacted, especially Hispanic women. Um, I, I mean, all women of color, but in the national research, Hispanic women have really taken the brunt of, of really worry, uh, job loss. Uh, financially being worse off in 2020, um, worried about paying bills and those things. And we did see that play out in the the data that we have in the state of Utah as well. And to your other part of your question, women equally, you know, of course, the experiences of women and men who have children in the home versus, you know, people like me who I have four children, but they're all, they're not at my home anymore, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. my delightful grandchildren are not in, <laughs> not in the home, but I, you know, enjoy seeing them. And so even though I have been impacted significantly, not, not in the same ways and not, I'll just have to say, you know, I don't have kids at home, like I said, and, and I really feel for all those mothers with kids at home. You know, it's great on one hand. They like having the kids around in one hand, but, but worrying about making sure they don't miss the learning for a full year with some of them that they would have gotten in school. We know that there's definitely an impact. So, uh, Richie, one other thing is the research talks about is um, that women generally, even before the pandemic, take on more of what's called, I'm putting this in quote marks, emotional load. And that really is the worry. You know, we worry more than men. We worry about our kids. We worry about their safety. We're, we worry, and sometimes our, the men don't worry as much, so we feel like we have to worry twice as much. We're, we're visiting with Susan Madsen, who is the director of Utah Women in Leadership, and and you are talking about this emotional load. I want to go a little bit further. So, so I mean, we're speaking in sort of generalized statements, but it seems that, that women sort of take on more of this emotional load. How, why do you feel like that is? And then what are we doing to make sure that we don't overburden uh, the women so that, you know, that, that they can't, uh, I'm failing at words for what I want to say, but so that they become so that they become overwhelmed and then can't be able to to function. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So what we know is before the pandemic, everything that was kind of unequal to begin with is more unequal. Mm. Everything that is real has really been, you know, the struggles are more struggles, and so. Unpaid care work is is one of the things, and, and sometimes it's called, I'm putting quote marks up, the second shift. Mm-hmm. So even if men and women work, 
you know, the same hours women tend to do significantly more than men in terms of unpaid care work. And the interest in that can housework and kids and elder care and all of that stuff kind of, kind of comes in. What's really interesting, though, is and I have to put this out there that many men, most men have stepped up in a lot of ways during the pandemic to, to pick up more as well. However, even with that, what I find is interesting is is the research that has come in, not my own, but some other research, says that, that men are perceiving that they're working pretty equally on this unpaid care work during the pandemic than women. And when you look at women's perceptions, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not the case. In terms of why, it's part of its socialization. I mean, it's the way that we've seen it done. It's the way that our mothers did it. It's the way that we see relationships in society. There's that. And also, when you look, I have to just say it, when you look at how we're made, women are made differently than men. Mm -hmm. Our brains are more similar than different, but there's still some evidence to show that we have kind of this worry place, you know, the estrogen that comes in and stuff. So we do worry, and it's a good thing we we worries uh, throughout my years. I've, you know, when I see kids with their dads, sometimes so they're wandering in and out of cars, and I'm like, "This is why we have women <laughs> to keep our children alive." So that worry, though, can be a drain, and we measured in this study we just released burnout. So, so, that, oh, so, so I would be curious then uh, to ask a little bit about that. If it, if, if the. If men perceive that they're balanced uh, and women are like, no, that, that's not what this is. How can you how can you possibly see that? But if the changes then would need to be coming from the men to be able to make it more balanced, how do we make a change if, and the, speaking in sort of general terms, if men don't see that that it is unbalanced, how do you how do you navigate a, a space for a change to even begin to occur? Well, that's that's interesting uh, because. Because oftentimes, I mean, it comes on the shoulders of both women and men. So in terms of women, oftentimes we just don't even talk about this. We just keep doing what we do. Or we have, I have to say, sometimes we have high standards, like the bath, cleaning the bathroom. Let's just talk about that. <laughs> like, okay, my husband's supposed to be cleaning the bathroom. Oh, it's not quite right. Um, okay, I'm going to have to go in and clean it after. So sometimes we have this, women tend to be more perfectionistic than men. So sometimes it comes to that. But sometimes we just need to have really good conversations. And there's some great evidence in the, quote, partnership literature. Um, and some of our psychologists and therapists in the state of Utah and beyond talk about this, that that actually there's some tools that, that couples can use to say, let's list all the things that we do and who does this or that to be actually to be more transparent in what we do. A lot of people, most people in relationships do not have these conversations. I think as we move forward, they're going to be more important. Um, and some say, hey, before you even get married, you should be having these conversations sure. to lay it out. Um, so those that's a, those are a couple of ideas. Yeah, I know anecdotally and from what I observe, like on social media and from visiting with friends, where if um, if it is the the woman who has stayed in the workplace and the man has sort of transitioned to home, whether because uh, the money that was being made was being made more by the woman or, or for whatever reason, right? The family decided when there's that recognition of, oh, this is what my partner does. Yes. I had no idea you know, a kudos and appreciation that, that um, you know, maybe hadn't been seen before the pandemic. So in the remainder of the time that we have with you, uh, visiting with Susan Madsen, who is the uh, director of the Utah Women and Leadership Project, I would be curious as to what you, if you can listen or look into your uh, post-pandemic crystal ball, are we going to see things return back to normal? Will there be a greater sensitivity for what occurs in the home and men and women will balance that out uh, as they return to work? Or, or what do you see uh, for women moving forward? Well, I, I don't think when, you know, I do a lot for, for women in business settings and so forth. I do not see us moving 100% back. I do see us shifting somewhat back. But 
But companies now and organizations, so I, I should use the word organization. So it's not just companies, but mm-hmm. people work all in business, in government and in universities and so forth. They have had to, organizations have had to shift now to do increased flexibility, of course, in work location and working hours and, and other benefits like different kinds of leave benefits and different things. So even though many organizations had some of these things, not more organizations have been shifted, almost forced, right? Mm-hmm. Forced into doing that. And I think that because we've raised our expectations as a society that companies can do that, and we're moving into companies should do that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think companies are going to be able to pull back on all of these things, especially telecommuting, right? Mm-hmm. Because actually it can be done now. You can do things that way. So people aren't just going to shift back and go five days a week. But 20 years ago, I did dissertation research on this and found that actually two to three days working at home, you could be more more productive, but it's good to go into the office some. So I see a shift with that. In terms of, of the home and in society, absolutely. I think more Men who have had the luxury, like I said, not everybody had the luxury to do remote work, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, that that they they see my own husband. He never worked at home, and now he's like, I don't see working in the workplace. But I think uh, you know, there's just more things that men have started to pick up in terms of responsibility, in terms of being around the kids more, and picking up some. Um, so I I do think you know having these conversations more and. And even if a woman works part-time, it's still important um, to have these conversations about shared partnership. I think there's great tools out there. Uh, for society, I think that's not going back either. Uh, I know in the state of Utah, I'm working with the new governor and the lieutenant governor and the administration on, let's change things. Let's have some public policies. I think other states would be the same as well. So I think this last year has shifted all of us into a place that we're going to be thinking more deeply about how we can be more equitable, right? And mm-hmm. and just just do things that really that everybody can thrive more, not just certain people in the population. And always remembering in my work the the women of color and their experiences that are somewhat different than white women out there. At the tail end of your of your research, you know, you've just released um, the, these findings uh, with women through the the pandemic, and 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 um, we're able to study, uh, I, as I understand it, thousands of women in their situation. Was there anything that surprised you within this research that in in this last couple minutes that we have with you that you want to mention? Well, I think the only other thing I would mention, and it's it wasn't a surprise, but it always makes me kind of sad is that, you know, a little bit, almost 10% of the people that responded did say that they have been and are worried about violence in the home. Mm. And we know across, in the state of Utah, one in three women will experience domestic violence. We know it's a little bit higher but it's than, the, than other states, but it's a problem all over the country. And even though, you know, it, you might say it's only 10%, that's reality. I mean, that's like people's lives. Yeah. And when women are struggling with domestic violence in their home, um, and, and domestic violence impacts our kids, and they're called adverse uh, childhood experiences. And what we know is when our kids are around that for the rest of their lives, they can be negatively impacted. They, they are, they're more likely to be on drugs, commit crimes, and so forth. So that would be kind of the somber piece that I would say we've got to all learn more about domestic violence so we can spot that and be more helpful to ourselves if we suffer, you know, come across that or help other people as well. I think this this research is just very valuable for anybody to read. If, if people want to find out more about the research that you've done, be able to read through it or, or even be able to see what you are doing next, uh, where can they go to follow your latest? So the Utah Women in Leadership Project website is utwomen.org, and we have a monthly newsletter, and we have people actually from all over the world that sign up because it's we have great research and resources and events um, that 
that we have one today on male allyship, how men can better advance women. So love to have people join us at utwomen.org. Dr. Susan Madsen is a professor of leadership at Utah State University and the director of the Utah Women and Leadership Project. Uh, Thank you again for being on the show with us. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lisa Show. Now, something that I love, which um, is both wonderful and also kind of tortures me a little bit, is looking at old photos of like when my kids were little or or fun memories. And I think that because we've all spent a lot of time at home Mm -hmm. for the last year, no reason, we have had a chance to be able to do that, to go through. But probably not a week goes by that I don't have this conversation with a friend. I'm being totally serious. Um, what do you do with all your photos? Like, mm. I have some on my phone. I have some. Like, I think I've got some film negatives. Some film negatives? <laughs> no, I do. Really? Yes. And it's like, I well, think I've got some old vacation slides that I need to convert. Listen, there's a lot of different ways to store your photos. And so getting them all together in one place is kind of difficult. You know, do you back them up on a cloud? Do you back them up on a hard drive? There's so many ways to do it. I, But it all seems very complicated and overwhelming, right? So how can we go about organizing them in a way that we'll never lose them and that we'll be able to access them, you know, instead of saying, oh, there's that one photo. Now, where is that? Now, now don't you have a friend, uh, Vanessa Quigley, who not only is the co-founder of the photo book company Chatbooks, but also is like the professional at doing this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, and, and, and she knows how to do this, so we wanted to get her on here to have a conversation about the best way to store our old photos. Welcome, Vanessa. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Hello. We're so glad you're here, and you are my friend, so that's why I have to laugh like that. Yes, <laughs> I know. It's great and to hear that, your voice. I'm your, friend, I'm your friend with film negatives as well. We are women of See? a certain age that have... <laughs> Yes, see, Richie, I'm, we're not the only L- ones. Listen, too. I'm just envious of your friendship. <laughs> I don't have friends myself, so I have to leech <laughs> off of you guys. Okay, so we need to dive right into this because uh, yeah. you know this is something that, that people want to know. How do you collect everything? So I want to start with your best advice for taking and organizing our photos like in accessible ways. Let's first start with our phones. How can we keep them from being lost or accidentally erased? Okay, first of all, you just got to make sure that you're backing them up somewhere. I have an iPhone. I back up to the iCloud. I back up to Google Photos. I back up to Dropbox. And I have a hard drive. Okay, wow. Okay. (laughs) Layers of protection. But those are all so easy to do. Okay. If you have an iPhone, it should automatically be backing up to iCloud. It's so easy to back up to Google Photos. You can do it for free in most cases. And if you have a Dropbox account, I just like that extra layer. Mm-hmm. And then, so when you're trying to access them from all of these different places, mm-hmm. what's the, an easy way to organize them? Yeah, so this is where you can um, you can dive deep and make a super complicated system. I'm, I'm envious of some of the systems I've seen that people have. For me, I love Google Photos because their AI is like world class. For example, I wanted to find a picture of my cat and I you just type in cat and it pulls up all pictures of cats. I wanted to find a picture from a ski trip. You type in skiing and I knew this ski trip was in Deer Valley. So I put Deer Valley. All of a sudden, wow. all of those photos pop up. That, I mean, honestly, that's the lazy man's way (laughs) to find photos. But really, my number one tip is just create a regular habit today. Start today. Don't worry about the backlog. And on a weekly basis, organize your photos. Clear out the junk. Really, my backups are so full of screenshots and multiples (laughs) and duplicates. I mean, that's going to be a lifetime project to go in and clean that up back going backwards. But starting today... Every week, I do it on Sundays. I call it my Sunday select. You know, when everything is settled down for the day, I go through all the photos of that week. I delete all of the junk. And then I have folders for each of my kids where I put in the best photos of those kids. Or I've got a one folder for the best of the year of our family photos. Doing that little bit of work regularly on a weekly basis saves so much work later when you want to create a book or a slideshow or print the best photos to hang on your wall. 
Oh, that's a great idea. So you queued up those things with our, within our phone, right? Those are digital yeah. photos, ones that we just need to store and back up and back up. But you guys both queued up slides. Now, <laughs> we may need to tell people what a, a slide in you fact is. You said slide. We said film negatives. Okay, fil- film <laughs> negatives. I'm, I'm just glad I you just... didn't say daguerreotype because then we're okay. getting nice and old. How, what What is the best way to, to store and enjoy those that are, you know, art school stuff. Yeah, the old school stuff. Yeah. Well, actually, this special year that we've had being home a lot, I've dived deep into the bins and boxes in my basement, tackling my slides. I actually have some slides. They're hand-me-downs from my parents, but I have them. Um, negatives and uh, printed photos I never got around to scrapbooking. Mm-hmm. I was a scrapbooker back in the day, but now I just have boxes of photos. Um, I followed a course from a woman called Miss Freddie. She has online courses that tell you how you can step-by-step take those physical archives and organize them digitally. Um, just scanners. I've just been scanning hmm. and um, organizing in clumps of years. I have a, a stack of photos that were from the house that we lived in in Watertown, Massachusetts, a stack of photos from we lived in Connecticut, a stack of photos from our, you know, just breaking up into time, um, time segments and then scanning and saving. And, you know, that it can be an overwhelming project. I suggest just knocking that out bit by bit. Um, but getting those in the cloud and safe has been such a relief for oh, me. Oh, I can and imagine. it's also been so nice to share those with extended family because a lot of those photos, they're, they're of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And so my siblings and my parents are getting to look at those and enjoy those, and it's just been amazing. But I have to say, like, the whole... The magic behind, you know, getting any momentum to do anything with your photos is understanding why you should do it. And it goes back to this theory. It's actually not a theory. It's been tested. It's been scientifically proved that knowing your past, knowing your family story, knowing like where you came from and the ups and downs that shaped your family and you helps you feel more confident and happier and more capable, and it strengthens families. So when you know the why, like why it's important to have this family narrative that is anchored in these photos, each photo speaks a thousand words. I mean, that's a pretty rich story when you get all that put together. Oh, yeah. Um, That's just super motivating. A a quick pro tip on if you have a lot of photos, uh, most cities have a genealogical society, and within those genealogical societies, there are scanners that are made uh, like how you would do um, multiple copies into uh-huh. a copy machine. So you can just take oh, a really? large stack of photos, yep. you bring a thumb drive, you hit, you know, scan, and it'll just go through those photos for you, put it all on a thumb drive, and not cost you a single dollar, oh, just wow. your time to go and do it. And most cities, again, have those genealogical societies. Yeah, that's true. Over quarantine, while we've all been locked up in our homes, those haven't been open. So I invested in a couple of really amazing scanners. But, um, yes, they're, they're starting to open up, and that is a great way to do it. Now, earlier you mentioned sharing photos with your family, with other people. How can you do that and without putting all those photos on social media? Yeah, so, I mean, I started a company called Chatbooks. <laughs> you might be familiar with it, Lisa. Um, uh, I've heard of it, a- yeah. Objection, ladies. I know we have to. We have to let everybody in on the joke. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, the chatbooks lady. Mm-hmm. Lisa, Lisa's the chatbooks lady. Um, our real mom. Um, but no, like getting them out of your phone and into your hands, like physically, is really important with sharing with the immediate family. We also send books and prints to my parents, to my siblings. But I, we have a shared Dropbox with my extended family, oh. where we have everything organized, where people could access. Um, and enjoy. Um, I, I like to create little, um, Google makes it really easy. And actually, your iPhone makes it really easy to create little slideshow and memories. And I will sometimes send those off to family. You know, my mom was just recently diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And now more than ever, it feels like so yeah. important to, to capture these um, these memories that are so fleeting for her in and, and a more permanent way that she can hold on to and look at and reflect and help keep her keep her with us longer. 
You know, Lisa mentioned the way to kind of keep these things secret, but there are others of us that want to share the ridiculous photos of ourselves <laughs> when we were younger. Are there new are there new um, forthcoming trends about how to share photos that would be different than, say, um, like your chat books or like your Facebook, uh, your Facebook or, yeah. or Instagram? Um, trends for, for sharing publicly. Yeah. Um, it feels, it feels like every day a new platform has, has come, come out. Um, I know TikTok, I've been seeing lots of people putting together little slideshows and putting them up on TikTok. Hmm. Um, I know my parents aren't on TikTok and they're the ones that care the most about my photos. Um, no, I, I feel like, you know, there, I don't really share a lot of our personal family photos on social media, but I have a really large extended family. I've got, I'm the oldest Mm -hmm. of 12 kids. They're like 60 grandkids. So our family group text and and WhatsApp (laughs) thread feels a little bit like social media. I'm sure. Um, And and that's a fun place to share some of the more embarrassing, um, revealing photos um, that everyone gets gets a a laugh out of. I, I, I love that you talk about having your why uh, between you know why you take pictures and and the benefit that it can have for your family, I think that the the tendency, especially for parents, is to take a bunch of pictures of their kids, but maybe not like their everyday ordinary life or pictures with them in it. Talk to a little bit about how you've seen the power of of being able to take those sort of everyday common photos. Yeah, the in between moments. That's what I refer to them as. Um, yeah, when we were first uh, parents and we had a big, nice camera and you had to buy film, oh, yeah. it felt like every frame was precious. And we found ourselves only pulling it out for like the dance recital and, you know, the spelling bee and, you know, the, the, the big event. But as I look back through those photos, it's really those in-between moments, like, um, you know, kids sitting around the table at dinner and they didn't even know I was taking their photo or a child playing quietly in the hall. Um, that is what really captures the essence of what this family life is about. Um, I'm also a huge advocate for taking pictures of the hard times because mm. when we talk about our family narrative, we don't, a story that's just all happiness and rainbows and unicorns. You're like, that's not compelling. It's the hero's journey that we love, right? That's what we pay money to go to the movies to see that story played out. And that is the story that was really going to create the strength and the grounding that our families need. When they need to know the good, the bad, the, the big, the little, like all those in-between moments is what really adds richness and depth to our family narrative that will, you know, create that, that base, that, that security where our kids can like dig their feet into and cling to. Because really that's what it's all about, right? It's all about strengthening our families and giving our kids this like sense of history that helps them know who they are and what's possible for them. Vanessa, we got about a minute left. I'm curious, what are the the pitfalls? What am I going to end up doing wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How is he going to mess this well, up? <laughs> it's overwhelmed by all the photos in the past that we haven't done anything with. And honestly, I get overwhelmed even just in a week of photos and videos that I take. So, Something is better than nothing. Start small. Start today. Set a regular weekly habit to deal with the photos that we are currently taking. And then set small baby, little bite-sized goals of how to tackle the stuff in the past. I love it. All right, I will. I'll start you gotta today. you got to do it. Uh, I have, Not just pictures of your thousands. rescue dog, yep. Robert, but pictures of you oh, and your oh, wife as oh, well. And the hard times. I, I actually appreciate yeah. that sentiment yeah. quite a bit. Vanessa Quigley, the co-founder of Chatbooks. You can find them online uh, at Chatbooks or her at Vanessa Quigley. Thank you for being with us. I think that's a doable thing that we can all do today is just to say, hey, you know, I'm going to go ahead and just take some pictures of like what my house looks like right now, whether it not all cleaned up, you know, not pristine, but like room from room. I know that as I've looked back at my childhood photos, I've appreciated those in between moments, you know, those pictures of, oh, I remember that. Yeah, so many photos. That's what just keeps playing again don't and again in my mind. I don't start today. Got start it. Today. Start today. Okay. We don't want to shock you. We don't want you to be unnecessarily alarmed. Now I feel like I'm going to be both shocked and alarmed. <laughs> Listen, Taxes aren't due until April 15th. So everybody take a deep breath. Okay, that's we're not just, shocking. I'm yeah, good so we're far. We're just going to, we're getting you ready. 
the day those taxes are due, April 15th, is still a few months away, but it's never too early to get started on your tax prep because we all know taxes can be confusing, complicated. And so today we wanted to address that one question that everyone has at one point or another. Are we paying too much or too little in taxes? Now, it's important to know that if we're doing it correctly so that we're not struggling throughout the year, right? Mm -hmm. Or suffering at the end like, oh, man, I got this big bill. So we have invited an expert on okay someone who actually knows yeah it is uh, not, it is not lisa or i that no would way. be your expert on this about the amount we're paying in taxes to help us prepare for that tax day and it's shannon stewart uh shannon's a federally licensed tax practitioner and financial educator and tax master welcome shannon hi good morning so how do we know if we're paying too much or too little in taxes Well, I think one of the things is if you're an individual, you really need to understand your particular tax situation. One thing that I find often is that individuals who are preparing their own taxes are often claiming the wrong filing status, and that can cost them thousands of dollars in credits that are available to them. So it's really important to understand your particular situation or have a professional that understands your particular situation. Okay, so talk a little bit more about that status that we're we're doing. If this is a common mistake, what can we do to remedy it? Well, one of the things I find is that taxpayers want to use their income to reduce their student loan payments. So, I mean, there's this huge student loan bubble that's out there, and people are having to deal with all of their student loans that are coming due. Yeah. And so they'll want the status of married filing separate. And they'll have things like children. And if we choose a married filing separate status, then we're going to disqualify ourselves from things like the earned income credit or the American Opportunity Credit or the lifetime credit, lifetime learning credit. So, you know, we don't want to lose credits that are we're entitled to this year trying to avoid perhaps paying back student loans and things of that nature. So that's the biggest hurdle that I'm seeing oh, wow. in the last years that people are dealing with. Well, that's a that's a good one because it's a specific. Um, if we're paying too much, what are some other areas that that we might want to look at? Well, I think also failing to claim um, deductions. So a lot of people are under the belief that since they've raised this the the threshold for our standard deductions, that no one's claiming standard or no one's actually itemizing these these uh, different things like your mortgage interest and property taxes and charity. Mm-hmm. While there was a big group of individuals that now can just claim the standard deduction and not have to actually itemize all those things, there's still that group out there that can take advantage of claiming deductions for the mortgage interest and property taxes and charity. So really, again, understanding your particular situation. And the best thing to do is just take all of what you have to your professional and let them make the determination. Don't just kind of um, disqualify yourself because of what you've heard on the news, because we see a lot of taxpayers that are coming in and, and bringing in their taxes. And, the, well, I didn't bring you my mortgage statement, my property taxes, my charity, because I can't claim that because I heard it on the news. Great advice. Thanks for helping us to get organized and get ready to do our taxes. We appreciate it, Shannon. Thank you. Shannon Stewart's a certified financial educator, tax master. To learn more about her and what you can do to prepare for tax day, if you need some more information, just go and visit advancedirsresolution.com. You're listening to The Lisa Show.